So it is with grateful hearts that we would bring thanks and praise to God today. We would gather for his worship. You can see in your bulletin that we'll worship him now in the reading and the hearing of his word. And you can also see in your bulletin that we're going to proceed this morning the same way we did last week. We're going to use our two separate scripture readings in the worship service to cover one long section in 2 Samuel. That's the way we proceeded last week, and we're going to do the same again today. Remember, last week it was chapters 13 and 14 that we covered. Last week it's what we might call part one in the long, sad Absalom episode. Remember, Absalom's half-brother Amnon violated Absalom's sister Tamar. A full two years later, Absalom had his revenge. Absalom had Amnon killed, and at that point, Absalom fled. A full three years after that, David's general Joab brought it about that Absalom could finally come back to Jerusalem, although when he first came back, his father David wasn't even willing to see him. At that point, Absalom, rather notably, brought it about that he would be fully restored to his father. And that's how chapter 14 ended. That's where we left off last week, at the end of chapter 14. Then Joab went to the king and told him, And he summoned Absalom, so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. End of chapter 14, that's where we left off last Sunday. And so we reflected last Sunday upon the truth that God is faithful, because this long, sad episode is nothing other than the fulfillment of what God had said to David. And also the truth that sin makes for misery. Because all of this is the fallout, remember, of what David did to Uriah the Hittite. And more pointedly, the truth that sin makes for misery close to home, in this case, at home. Because David, who ruined another man's household, is now finding the waves coming back to crash down upon his own. So that's where we left off last Sunday, end of chapter 14. What we're going to see this week, picking up at the beginning of chapter 15, is that David may have greeted his son Absalom with that kiss of reunion and restoration and recognition, but that certainly did not mean that all was well. Absalom may have been restored to David's presence, but he clearly was not restored to David's authority. So let me read for us now. 2 Samuel 15, beginning at verse 1. Hear now God's word. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, 
See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from a city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men, and all the little ones were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. 
If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefooted with his head covered, And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, Behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, Tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So having prayed as we have in song, let's turn again to God's word. Earlier in our service, I read for us chapter 15. You know the pattern by now. We'll pick up where we left off. 2 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of God. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. Remember, by the way, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul. Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Behurim, 
there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all the servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road. Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give me your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. And so ends chapter 16. So we've had these two chapters now before us. Chapters 15 and 16. I I do want to say this, by the way, as a reminder, as a reinforcement Remember last week, one of the lessons we learned was that God is faithful. Because this long, sad episode is nothing other than the fulfillment of God's word to David. And as I said last week, I put you on notice. 
I'd probably be mentioning that truth for several weeks to come. Well, it needs to be said again this week. What Absalom does there at the end of chapter 16, as strange and awful as it was, that is the fulfillment of what God had said to David back in chapter 12. Remember when Nathan the prophet goes to David, rebukes him, This is what God says to David back in chapter 12. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. That's what God said to David back in chapter 12. Could David even have imagined at the time that this neighbor that God was talking about would turn out to be David's very own son. Sin makes for misery close to home. Sin breeds more sin even at home. God is faithful. God follows through. And this is an instance of it, the way chapter 16 ends. So that's a reminder, that's a reinforcement. Remember, that's a running theme in these chapters. This whole unfolding episode is God following through on what he said to David would happen. So that's a reminder, that's something we highlighted especially last week. The truth that I want to underscore now for us this week is this. This is our focus today. I want you to notice... In the chapters that we've heard today, 15 and 16, I want you to notice all of the different ways in which David continues to trust in the Lord and to walk with him, even as he's walking out of Jerusalem, fleeing from his own rebellious son. David continues to trust in the Lord. Let me just point out a few moments where that shines out. Back in chapter 15, at verse 19, remember there's this fellow Ittai the Gittite. And David deals kindly with him, deals generously with him. He says, look, you, you don't need to come with us now that we're on the run like this. Go back. Go back to Jerusalem. You're new to this cause. You don't need to come with me now. Look at verse 20. This is back in chapter 15, verse 20. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And then he says this. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Now, it's certainly true, even in the Bible, unbelievers can be heard throwing around pious-sounding expressions. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't necessarily tell us anything about what they're like. But given everything we know about David, when David says to Ittai, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, that's not a man who's just throwing words around or who's invoking a traditional blessing that doesn't mean anything to him. No, that is David commending another soul to God's care. Why? Because he's still trusting in that care himself. 
And David knows that it's the only hope that any one of us has. Whether it's David himself, or Ittai the Gittite, or anyone. So there's that little glimpse. A few verses later, let me point out another one. Look at verse 24. Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And then verse 25, what does David tell them to do with the Ark? Verse 25, the king said, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. That's David resting in the will of God. Resting in that will, even though he knows very well that will might be painful for him. And think about the significance of this. Think about the significance of the ark. This symbol of the presence of God. Can you just imagine what it might have meant to David? To have that symbol go with him. When his own son is driving him out of the city. What that might have meant to have that. But David says no. Send it back. I'm not going to rest in this, this symbol Send it back. I'm going to rest in the God whose presence is symbolized by it. And I'm going to accept what he has for me, come what may. What a moment that was. Here's another one. A few verses later now. Again in chapter 15. Look at verse 31. This man Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Widely esteemed as a counselor. Everybody leaned in and and listened to what Ahithophel had to say. And Ahithophel has sided with Absalom. Look at verse 31 in chapter 15. It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the cause of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's David commending his cause to God in prayer. And it's a militant cause now, and it's a hard petition. David is saying, God, take this man who's well known with your wisdom and make him look foolish. Because you can do anything. Ahithophel is somebody that David had looked to. Everybody looked to him. And David prays like this, God, make him look like a fool. That's quite a prayer. Well, that's a God-trusting prayer in a time of crisis and rebellion and urgency. We've seen time and time again that David's a man of prayer. He still is. And then one more, skipping down to chapter 16. One more glimpse of how David is trusting in the Lord. In chapter 16 is when... Shimei shows up, cursing David, flinging dust, throwing stones. Baishai, the son of Zeruiah, says, I'll take care of this. I'll go take off his head. But what does David say? 
Chapter 16, verse 10. If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more this Benjaminite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. David recognizes even in this, that this is something God has brought to pass. He says, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So once again, here is David resting in the will of God, even though he knows God's will might be painful for him. So those are four different instances of this. In all of these different ways. In this extraordinary moment. David shows himself to be a man. Who still trusts in God. And and who still actively pursuing God. Even as he's resting in the will of God. And here's why I want to highlight that. Here's why I want to underscore that today. Think about it. David continues to walk with God in suffering even when he knows that his suffering is God chastising him for his own sin. Think about that. David continues to walk with God in suffering even knowing this, that the suffering he's experiencing is God chastising him. For his own sin. And and that is worth underlining in our Bibles and in our hearts and minds. Because you can imagine in this moment in David's life. You can imagine David might have thought to himself. This must be a time to take a time out from walking with God. David might have reasoned with himself like this. He might have thought, well, clearly I'm being chastised for my sin. Nathan the prophet said this was going to happen because of my sin. God said through Nathan that there'd be this kind of violence within my own household because of my sin. Well then, David might have thought, it must be that God doesn't want anything to do with me now. Therefore, I won't have anything to do with him. Therefore, this isn't a time for me to be trusting in him and walking with him. But David doesn't reason like that. David knows better. David knows that this is precisely a time for him to be walking with God and trusting in him. The very God who's laying him so low because of how David sinned so tragically against him. David gets it, and it shows. Among other things, David understands that this is not a matter of God casting him off. No, this is a matter of God lovingly, wisely, dealing with David in the aftermath of his sin. This is actually God pursuing David. God hasn't cast him off. So why should David act like he has? God has not quit on David. Why should David quit on God? And so he doesn't. Thinking about 
the whole storyline of First and Second Samuel, this sheds w- wonderful light on what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Remember that phrase? That phrase that still echoes down from chapter 13. Way back in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel now. Saul the king has sinned against the Lord. Samuel the prophet brings him a hard word from the Lord. And remember what Samuel says to Saul. He says, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. That was way back in 1 Samuel 13. Before we even met David. Before we even knew his name. That's how he was introduced to us. A man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13. And ever since then, ever since we've met him, ever since we learned his name at last, we've been witnessing what that means. Right? What it means for David to be a man after God's own heart. It has unfolded before our eyes as we've made our way. And obviously, a big part of what that means is all of the good and glorious and positive things that naturally come to mind when we hear that phrase. It means that David is a man of faith and obedience and courage and service and, and devotion and, and praise. It means all of that. Of course it does, and we've seen that. But it means more than that. To be a man after God's own heart. We've also seen going back a few chapters, that it means being a man of repentance when you have failed to exhibit faith and obedience and courage and service and all the rest. In other words, it means that you handle your own sin well. Because that's what we saw when Nathan came to David and rebuked him. What was David's response? He repented and he repented deeply. And and that was an aspect of being a man after God's own heart. That you handle your own sin well. Well, my point is this. This morning, we're adding yet another panel to this unfolding portrait. What does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Well, this morning, we can say, it also means that you keep Walking with God even at a time when God is laying you low because of your sin. To be a man or woman after God's own heart, it's not just that you handle his commandments well by obeying them. It's not just that you handle your own sin well by repenting of it. It's also... That you handle God's chastisements well. By continuing to walk with him. Instead of quitting on him. When you're suffering in the aftermath of your sin. This is a good lesson for us to learn as Christians. Christian, if you find yourself. In some circumstance in which you are suffering. As the direct result of some sin you committed. I mean the lines of cause and effect are clear. You're not guessing. You're not wondering. It's clear. You've brought some trouble upon yourself. And maybe upon others. 
because of something that you said or did. Christian, even then, keep walking with God. Turning to his word the way you know you should. Communing with him in prayer. Seeking to be obedient. Repenting of how you weren't obedient. Seeking to make things right in the wake of damage that you caused. Resting in his wisdom. Examples are not hard to think of. You're careless behind the wheel and now you're dealing with all kinds of inconveniences and physical pains and maybe worse because of an accident you caused on the road. Or you send an email to a colleague that you know you shouldn't have sent. You knew it even as you clicked send. An email with words in it that you know you shouldn't have written. And now relationships are in tatters and so is your reputation and your jobs on the line. Or you cheat on a test at school. And you get caught. And now you've wrecked more than your grade. Whatever it is, examples abound. Some situation in which you're dealing with the repercussions, the consequences of your sin. Christian, even then, keep walking with God. And one of the reasons why it's so important for us to grasp this is that we could easily make it an excuse for quitting on God. By telling ourselves, well... This season of suffering is my own fault. God's laying me low. That must mean that there's no point in even trying to walk with him. And to trust in him. There's no point. Not right now. So why bother? Why try? You see, it becomes an excuse. But but that excuse won't do. What I said before about David, I can say about each one of us in Christ. When God is chastising you for some sin, he hasn't quit on you. Remember what it says in Proverbs, quoted again in Hebrews. The Lord chastises those he loves. He hasn't quit on you, so you cannot make that an excuse for quitting on him. This whole issue has been on my mind lately. I think it's one of the reasons why it leapt off these pages as I was reading them again over this past week. You all know I've been working lately on this manuscript on the subject of suffering in the Christian life. I've got a few chapters toward the end that I called FAQs about suffering. Frequently asked questions about suffering in the Christian life, and there are a lot of them. Well, one of them is this. It it is a question that Christians frequently wrestle with. I had it posed to me once by a fellow believer quite clearly at a time when he really needed an answer to it. The question is this. If I'm suffering in some way as a result of my own sin, Are the comforts of Scripture still available to me? Or conversely, 
Have I put myself beyond the reach of those comforts because this suffering is my own fault? I've brought this upon myself. Therefore, have I put myself beyond the reach of walking with God and trusting in God and resting in the comforts that are to be found in the Word of God? And that, that's a potent question, isn't it? That's not just... An FAQ, frequently asked. I think we can call it a PAQ, poignantly asked. If, if I've brought suffering upon myself, have I actually put myself beyond the reach of Scripture and the comforts that are to be found there and the merciful God who's revealed there? And, and one of the reasons this question might come to mind, might even plague us and haunt us at a time of suffering. One of the reasons is a perfectly biblical reason. Putting it in air quotes, we have Peter to blame. We have first Peter to blame for the fact that this question comes to mind. Because in first Peter, Peter distinguishes between suffering for righteousness And suffering as a result of our sin. And of course he magnifies in 1 Peter suffering for righteousness. He says you don't want it to be the case that you're suffering for sin. This is 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 he says what credit credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then a little bit later in the same letter he says... It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That all comes from 1 Peter. At first glance, you read that language in 1 Peter, and you might come away with the impression that if you're suffering the consequences of your own sin, all God says is, you deserve it, deal with it. And we can talk when the suffering is over. But that's just a first glance. Take a second or a third at First Peter. Think again about what Peter's saying. It's certainly true that Peter is highlighting suffering there that is other-inflicted when you've been righteous. It's certainly true that there is a peculiar and glorious kind of grace that shines when you walk with God at a time like that. But that doesn't mean That the Christian who's suffering as a result of his own folly and who has repented of it has effectively cut himself off from Scripture. Peter says, yes, it's better to suffer for righteousness' sake. But that doesn't mean that if you're suffering for sin, you're entirely out of bounds and you've got to wait for the suffering to end before you can come back. And avail yourself of the grace of God. Not at all. Even then. Even then it's a moment for grace. And grace is to be had. Now it's certainly true. When your suffering is the result of your sin. There are distinctive lessons to be learned from that. As opposed to suffering for righteousness. So when I find that. Waves that I set in motion because of my sin are coming back to crash down upon me. Yeah, I should be humbled because it's a revelation of my own frailty. 
Yes, I should be stirred to make things right in relationships with people I hurt. Yes, I should be wary about sin going forward. Absolutely, there are these distinctive lessons that we can learn and bring to bear when it is the case that my suffering is the result of my own sin. I love the way our Confession of Faith puts it. This is in the chapter in our Confession of Faith on Providence. It says this, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends, end quote. That's how our confession of faith puts it. So the point is, God, our most wise and righteous and gracious God, has these purposes for us when he gives us over to the power of sin, including chastising us for that sin. But you see, that's just it. He has purposes And so our calling, even in the midst of those pains, even with tear-stained cheeks, is to embrace those purposes and to seek that they be realized. And so we trust in Him. We walk with Him. We turn to His Word. We commune with Him in prayer. We seek to be obedient. We seek to be repentant. We rest in His wisdom. So brothers and sisters, believe it or not, even at this point in 2 Samuel, even where we are now in this unfolding narrative, David's an example for us. We might have thought that David ceased entirely to be a good example around about the end of chapter 10 because it was after the end of chapter 10 that things went downhill. David who fell so far. David who messed up so badly and messed things up for so many. But that's just it. That's the example. Even when you've messed things up in a bad way and it hurts and you've hurt others and there's no end in sight, Christian, don't go go grasping for excuses to quit. No, even then, keep walking with God. Above all, that means running to Christ who lives for you. Resting in Christ who died for you. Jesus trusted in his Father when he was suffering for your sin. Now you fix your eyes on him even if you're suffering the painful fallout of those same sins. Jesus will not fail you. Just when we might think that we've placed ourselves beyond the reach of mercy and of divine calling, it turns out that we haven't. It turns out we never will. So even then, Even now, may we heed the call. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are such a God as this. A God who doesn't quit on us. Forgive us that we're prone to look for excuses to quit on you. Perhaps especially when we know 
We can see it. That we're suffering. As a result of our own sin. We pray that you'd hold on to us in those moments. And grant us to keep walking with you. We pray that we might be such a church family as that. That we hold on to one another in such moments. And encourage one another. With words like these. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.